Well, that's my condition. <clears throat> at, at least I'm a lot more that way than I have been for quite a while. Thank you for your prayers. There's still a, an awful lot of people suffering from this malady. And uh, <clears throat> if, if you know any of them, stay away from them because you don't want it. Uh, it's, it's just rough. I've been listening to, <coughs> pardon me, the news. And I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I want you to be aware. They have begun doing screenings of travelers coming in from China because of a virus called the coronavirus. And a new strain of it was traced back to a specific market in, I think it's in Shanghai. And now when travelers come in from China, they're taking their temperature before they let them come in. Uh, it's a bad virus. It has killed a bunch of people in China. And they don't want it to kill a bunch of us over here. So if you hear that it's coming this way, just don't come out. Don't, uh, don't go around people. You don't want it, okay? Uh, quit your job. <laughs> don't go to the grocery store. Nothing. Just stay inside. So I guess we're all going to go to the store and buy milk and bread and water and butter and eggs and just have French toast and water. Does that sound good? How many of you are up for French toast? You know, in the, in the past, we, we've had pancake breakfasts. Pancakes are okay, but I've never been all that fond of pancakes. I always preferred waffles, but my favorite was French toast. And I just want to know why nobody ever decided that we were going to have a French toast breakfast. I'm not asking to have one. It's just a thought that just crossed my mind. This is stream of consciousness preaching. You get what I get. <laughs> it's just... Everybody's always looking for excuses to not do what is best. <laughs> Speaking of doing things, <clears throat> we're, we're looking in this series at who is Jesus, and it takes in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that people often ask when they approach the four accounts, the biographies of Jesus, is, uh, I want to know what Jesus did. I want to know what Jesus did. What did he do next? And if you read through the Gospel of Mark, there is a, a word that in almost every English version comes out many times. As a matter of fact, it appears like 33, 34 times. It's the word immediately. And, and Mark is not talking about uh, chronological order. He's not really concerned about that. What he's talking about is the sense of urgency with which Jesus did things or with which other people did some things. And, and we look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we, we want trails. We want to know, what did Jesus do? What, did he, uh, what, what order did he do things? When did he say certain things? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels. That's a combination of Greek words, which means they have the same perspective on things. They don't tell things necessarily in the same order. They don't tell things using identical words, but they look at basically the same events. Mark was writing to people who are skeptics. Matthew was writing to Jews. Luke was writing to Gentiles. And so the way that they express what it is they looked at or, or was heard comes out just a little bit differently. John is just different. He doesn't care to write about a lot of the things that Matthew and Mark and Luke did. Mark is a more philosophical approach to the ministry of Jesus. He, he wants you to begin to understand the why of what Jesus taught. He wants you to look inside the mind and the heart of Jesus. But whether we're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the number one question that most of us ask is, what did Jesus do? But it occurred to me a few weeks back that sometimes... We learn as much about someone by looking at what the person didn't do. Have you ever taken a look at your life and figured out how people view you? Martin Luther King Jr. said one time that 
at the end of our lives, we won't remember so much the evil deeds that have been committed against us by our enemies. He said, instead, we will remember most the silence of our friends. Isn't that a powerful statement? Have you ever been under attack and no one came to defend you? I mean, they stood right there. They could have said something in your benefit, but they did not say a word. They did not lift a finger to help you. That sticks with you, doesn't it? So when we look at the life of Jesus, maybe one of the things that we need to do is not just look at what it is Jesus did, but look at what it is Jesus didn't. We're going to do that today. We're going to look at the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And again, I just want to tell you that during this series, we're not always going to look at whole chapters. Sometimes we'll look at just single events. But I wanted you to see in this chapter what it is Jesus did not do. Because this chapter tells us some really important truths about Jesus based upon the kinds of things he did not do. We'll take it a section at a time, just like we did last week. We'll read a few verses, and then I'll make a comment. Here we go. And when he, meaning Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. I want to stop there for a minute. It does not mean that Jesus owned the house. Apparently, in Capernaum, he lived with Peter and Andrew and their family, which included their mom. It included Peter's wife. Don't know if they had kids, but that's where Jesus stayed. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. <clears throat> but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, We never saw anything like this. Lesson number one. Jesus did not forgive sins in order to heal the paralytic. He healed the paralytic in order to demonstrate he had the power and authority to forgive sins. The lesson is not so much in what Jesus did as far as the people could see. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm not going to believe it until I see it? How many of you ever heard that? It's skeptics who say that. Skeptic is another Greek word. It means someone who doubts. Skeptic comes from the Greek word skopos, which means to see. In other words, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. Are you a skeptic? Don't answer. I grew up in the state of Missouri. You know what the motto of the, the state of Missouri is, don't you? Show me. If you've ever watched 
the, the movie, The Outlaw Josie Wales, that comes up in the movie. How many of you have ever seen The Outlaw Josie Wales? Ah, good. We have some cultured people here. <laughs> got to like westerns, post-Civil War westerns. You got to be able to suspend your an animosity for either the North or the South if you're watching The Outlaw Josie Wales. And, and in, in the movie, at one point, a little old lady talks about the show-me state. You have to show me. Actually, it's the young lady who says that to the outlaw Josie Wales. See, I've, I've watched the movie a few times. I grew up in Missouri. We say, you have to show me. In other words, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. There were people sitting there watching all of this going on. Can you imagine what it was like for Peter and Andrew and their mom and everybody else to find that, that the crowds are so big that somebody is cutting a hole in your roof? How many of you would be happy if somebody cut a hole in your roof? A while back, in, in the windstorm that we had, you remember that? A few weeks back? It it messed up some of the shingles on our house. And the people that own the house, we don't own it, we rent. The people that own the house have been trying to figure out when it is they're going to fix those shingles. Now, no one cut a hole in our roof, but I got to tell you, I've been watching where those shingles have come off to see whether or not the roof leaks. I've seen some wet places on the brick that tell me there's a leak in the roof. They were supposed to come three days ago, but the weather was bad. <laughs> Pray for us. These people watched a group of four guys cut a hole in the roof, and, and the, the hole was big enough to let a man who was laying on a pallet down through the hole in the roof. I don't blame you, pumpkin. People watch this. And what really got to them was what Jesus said. Now, mind you, he said what he did in response to the faith of the four men who laid the man down through the roof. We don't know whether or not that young man had faith. We know that his four friends did. And in response to their faith, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. I guess we need to talk just a little bit about whether or not there's a relationship between sin and physical ailments. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there isn't. Apparently, Jesus' younger half-brother James saw that there was a connection between sin and some ailments because in the fifth chapter of his letter to the early church, he says that you and I, when we are sick, need to do this. Call the elders, confess our sins, have the elders anoint us with oil and pray for us because the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. What he's talking about is a sickness that is a direct result of somebody's sin. He's not making a blanket statement that every sin, sickness is a result of a person's sin. Nor is he saying that every time the elders pray for someone and anoint them with oil, the sick person is going to be made well. But if a person sins in such a way that their sin results directly in a sickness, what is needed is not so much healing of the body, but the confession of sin and the prayers of the saints. And we don't want to go there. I'm not saying I'm not willing to discuss that right now. I'm about to. 
I'm saying that we don't like to talk about whether or not our sinfulness has any kind of impact on our physical bodies. We think about it. When we get really sick, I mean really sick, I'm not talking about the colds or the flu. I'm talking about a life-threatening illness. All of a sudden, inside, we begin to play this recording. Wonder which of my sins made God so upset that I'm in this condition. And when we're in those conditions, we like it when somebody comes to visit us and that person prays. But what we don't want is to have to tell that person how it is we sinned. It's interesting that back in the first chapter of Mark, when Mark talks about the ministry of John the Baptist, and he talks about all the people who were coming out to John at, at the Jordan River out in the wilderness, coming out from Jerusalem and Judea, he says that as John was baptizing them, they were confessing their sins. I cannot tell you the last time that I baptized a person and immediately prior to their baptism, <clears throat> they stood there and told everybody what they'd been up to. That's what happened when John was baptizing. Apparently that's what happened in the ministry of Jesus too when he taught his followers, the apostles, to baptize. Apparently people confessed their sins as they came to be baptized. And I don't know if John the Baptist had to prompt people, tell us what you've been up to. Or if the apostles had to do that, tell us what you've been up to. And I can't remember the last time that when I went to a hospital or to someone's home to pray for them when they're sick, that before I prayed for them, they said, you know something, I, I got to get some stuff off my chest. I, I got to tell you what my sins are. Now, at other times, people have told me what their sins are. When their relationships have gone bad and they come to see me, and, and they want to know how to put their relationships back together, sometimes they will be honest and tell me, here's why my husband is mad at me, or here's why my wife is mad at me. And they will tell me some of their sins. But I want to know why, you don't have to answer, I want to know why is it that when we are sick, we don't say, here's what I've been up to. This may be the proximate cause of the ailment that I am experiencing right now. I don't know what the paralytic sins were. We are not told. But we are told that the key to his healing was in the forgiveness that Jesus offered him for the sins which he had committed. The question that the scribes and the Pharisees were asking in their heart, who can forgive except God? comes from, from several places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and Isaiah especially, where God claims the power, the authority to forgive sins. And it does not say in those passages that he delegates that authority to anybody else. In the New Testament, Jesus does. He tells the apostles, and through them, by extension, the rest of the church, not just the clergy. He tells them, whatsoever sins you forgive a person are forgiven in heaven. Really, the way he says it is this. Whatsoever sins you forgive have already been forgiven in heaven. Our English translations, our translators, sometimes don't do a very good job. They try. You know what? They're human. They make mistakes. Sometimes they allow their preconceived ideas to infiltrate their work of translation and tell them how they're going to translate something instead of letting 
the way something is translated affect what they think. Who can forgive sins except God? So Jesus perceives what they had in their hearts. They did not vocalize their question, their thoughts. In our day and age, we'd say that Jesus was a mind reader. But you know what? Jesus knows that sometimes what's in a person's mind flows from what's in the person's heart. In the Gospel of Matthew, he would say that the mouth speaks out of the overflow, the abundance of what's in the heart. Where are your passions? What is it that's most on your heart? Are you a skeptic like these people? That you don't believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? Listen to me. Jesus did not heal the person just to heal the person. Jesus healed the person to demonstrate he has the authority to forgive sins. Which one is easier? To say, son, your sins are forgiven. Or, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Well, your sins are forgiven is a shorter sentence. Just from a word count and syllable count, it's easier to say that. And Jesus makes his point, but he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Rise. Take up your bed. Go home. And he did. Have you ever thought about the possibility that in your desperation, when you are really sick, and mentally you're running through a catalog of your sins, that God is listening? And that maybe one of the reasons that God has for having brought you through that ailment, having healed your body, was as an indication of something that had gone on in your soul, that God made you well as a proof that your sins have been forgiven. Now listen, don't go the other direction and think that because a person has a catastrophic illness and ends up dying, that they have not been forgiven. That's not what the scriptures are saying. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if you've ever had an ailment and you thought you were going to die and there was reasonable expectation you might die and yet here you are today maybe just maybe a part of what it took to make your body well is the forgiveness of your soul boy that's something to ponder isn't it and maybe Maybe like the paralytic, Jesus isn't requiring that we confess to everybody else what our sins are. But maybe once in a while, Jesus' half-brother James is right in what you and I need to do before we should expect any option on God's part of healing us is to find some godly, some righteous people like the elders and confess to them our sins and ask them to pray. I will tell you this. Jesus is not unconcerned about your physical health. But he's not nearly concerned about whether or not your body gets well or dies. He's concerned about whether or not your soul is forgiven. Let's go on. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his, meaning Levi's house, 
many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, <coughs> Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lesson? Jesus did not spend time with sinful people because they followed him. They followed him because he met their need for forgiveness. With whom do you spend your time? One of the things that that supernaturally happens after we become Christians is that eventually, over the course of our lives, we stop spending time around people who are bad influences on us. Translation, we stop spending time around people who lead us into sin. I'm not saying we don't sin anymore. Because you and I both know we do. Jesus' best friend, John, later on would write, 1 John, near the end of the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter, he says, I'm writing this to you, people that I love, because you're not supposed to sin. If you say that you have fellowship with the Father, and yet you keep on sinning, you don't have fellowship with the Father, and you're making him out to be a liar. Making God out to be a liar. I'm writing this so you won't sin. But when you sin, not if, when you sin, confess your sins to the Father and He will forgive you. Why? Because that's in His nature. That's what John says. It's in the nature of God to forgive our sins. He is righteous and faithful to forgive. That means it's a part of his nature. You know, one of the, one of the challenges that we face is that we often think of God as being some kind of ogrely person, some kind of cosmic judge who is just waiting to pounce on us and smack us down and send us all to hell. That's not who God is. Will God allow you to go to hell? Listen, if you're determined to do that, He will let you. But God is righteous and He is faithful to forgive. In other words, that's what He wants to do for you. Jesus, Jesus found that lots of people wanted to spend time with Him. He did not spend time with them because he wanted lots of followers. They came to him because in him they found forgiveness. Who, who, two questions. With whom do you spend your time? The longer you are a Christian, the more time you want to spend with godly people, the more time you want to spend with God, the less time that you are interested in spending around sinful people. However, the next question is, who wants to spend time with you? Who is attracted to you? Are, are you attracting only people who, like you, have been forgiven of their sins? You're on the path to heaven, and, and nobody who is wicked and sinful wants to spend time around you anymore? It's time for me to make a confession here. This is both good and bad. You might think that as a part of my work that I get to spend a lot of time around people who are not Christians. That's just not true. Because the vast majority of my time gets taken up by Christians who have a lot of questions. And that's okay. Really, that's okay. 
But there is one time in, in my life that comes up almost once a year. Not always, but almost once a year for the last 10 years or so where I attract a crowd of sinners. It is at my high school class reunion. You know, all those people knew before we graduated that I was going to be a preacher. And, and in, in high school, my closest friends were like me. They were Christians. You know, we, we went to different churches, but we were all Christians, okay? And I just didn't spend an awful lot of time around the wicked people. I didn't go to the keggers, you know. It just didn't interest me. I wasn't hanging around in the boys' room smoking weed. Didn't interest me. I, I would pull pranks on people, but I never did anything destructive. So the wicked people weren't hanging around me. But you know something? As we have all aged, and we're all now 62, 63, 64 years of age, when I go to a class reunion... I'll sit down with some of my Christian friends and I don't get to talk with them because there is a lineup of our classmates who have continued to live intentionally sinful lives who make a beeline for Charlie McGee because they have questions. And before long, what comes out of them is, I've got this problem. Can you help me with it? And I tell them, no. But I know somebody who can. It's not just a matter of with whom you spend your time. It's who wants to spend time with you. Jesus didn't spend time with sinful people just because he wanted to draw a crowd. He spent time with sinful people. They wanted to spend time with him because in him they could find forgiveness. They found somebody who would not look down on them because of their sinfulness, but instead cared about the condition of their souls. Do you attract sinful people? Do they know that in you they will find a sympathetic ear? Someone who, like Jesus, we are told in the book of Hebrews, was tempted in all ways that we are and yet was without sin. These people knew that Jesus did not sin. They also knew he was not going to condemn them. John 3.17 is as important a verse as John 3.16. You know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And verse 17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Do sinful people want to spend time around you because they know that if they just hang around you, instead of being a bad influence, you're going to lead them to Jesus, and they're going to find forgiveness for their souls. Let's move on. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, meaning Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does... The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus did not expect his followers to fast while he was with them. Jesus expected to bring the joy of a new life. 
That business about fasting, Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that there are certain acts of righteousness that are expected of anybody who is a part of the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that because I don't want you to miss it. There are certain things that are expected out of anybody who is a part of the kingdom of God. Who expects it? God does. Now, it, it's real important that you grasp that. Because sometimes we read the Sermon on the Mount, we love to read the Beatitudes, and we love to put ourselves in a part of them. We want the blessings. And, and we may read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but we don't always pay attention to what is being said. We don't always pay attention when it talks about what is expected of us. We want the blessings of being in the kingdom. We don't want the expectations that come with being a citizen. In chapter 6, Jesus talks about God's expectations of the kinds of behavior exhibited by citizens of the kingdom. And he says, don't do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. In other words, God cares not only about what you do, but why you do it. He cares about your motivation. What's your reason for doing these things? Listen to what they are. Praying, fasting, and giving. Well, we're fine with God expecting us to pray. Just as long as nobody asks us to speak the prayer in public. But those other two, fasting? You, you expect me to fast? Giving? You expect me to give? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Those are three markers that you are moving toward maturity in the faith. You may be nervous about praying in public. Jesus does not condemn public prayer. I mean, after all, he did it a lot, right? He thanked God all the time. I think that's part of the reason that Paul tells the church in Thessalonica and the church in Philippi that we're to give thanks in all of our circumstances. Jesus did. We should too. If you're growing as a Christian, there will come a time when somebody's going to turn to you and say, would you please say the prayer? I am so grateful to T for, for a lot of things, okay? She does a really good job of planning our worship. She always selects songs that go along with the message that gets preached. That, that's a gift from God. I don't worry about it. I send her my notes. She just does it. Okay? But one of the things I'm thankful for is that in the last year or two, whenever we have a dinner here at church, she doesn't wait for us to get in there and for somebody to turn to Jeff or to me and say, would you please say the prayer? Because if there is a meal going on and there is a preacher around, somebody's going to turn to the preacher and say, would you please offer thanks? Would you say grace? Whatever it is. Right, Kip? T just goes ahead and prays. Thank you. Sooner or later, if you're growing as a Christian, somebody's going to ask you to pray about something. They want to hear your prayer when they ask. It's a mark of Christian maturity that you get asked to pray. Just be careful about how you do it and why you do it. The object is not for you to be heard. The object is for God to hear you, not the people. Why do you fast? The Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. You know why? Because according to tradition, Jesus, not Jesus, 
Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law on a Thursday, and he came back down on a Monday. That's tradition. It's not in the Bible. Look for it all you want. It's not there. I know. I teach Old Testament. It's not there. Okay? But the tradition was that he went up on a Thursday and came back down on a Monday. And so they would fast every Thursday and they would fast every Monday as a way of recognizing we've received the law. This is what they're talking about. But you know what they would do when they fasted? They wanted to make sure everybody knew how righteous they were and that they were fasting. So they would wear their grungiest clothing. They wouldn't take a bath. They would put oil on their hair and then throw dust on it. And they would put ashes on their face to make them look pale and sickly as a way of visibly indicating, I am holy, I am righteous, I am fasting. Jesus says, when you fast, not if, when. God expects his people to fast. How often? Does not say. Why? Does not say. I know this, that later in the ministry of Jesus, his apostles are going to come to him with a case that they couldn't solve. A person they could not heal, even though Jesus had given them a commission to heal, even though he had given them authority and power to heal, but they could not heal this person. And he said, this one only comes out by much prayer and fasting. You ever fast? I'm not just talking about an intermittent fast because you want to be healthier. What's the purpose for your fasting? Do you ever fast because you are so consumed with the will of God, you don't even think about eating? You ever watch a parent who sits at the bedside of a really sick child? You ever notice you have to make them get away from the child and go eat or that you have to bring food to them but even when you do their thoughts are consumed with the health of the child and they just can't imagine taking time to eat all they think about is praying for the child and being available for the child have you ever thought so much about God's will for your life that all thoughts of food just leave your mind It is a mark of Christian maturity. If you are growing as a Christian, there will come a time when you just are so consumed with knowing the will of God and living up to the will of God that for a while you just don't think about eating. You ever get there yet? And giving... The Pharisees, sometimes, when they were going to the temple to give or when they would enter the synagogue and were getting ready to go to the offering box, they had boxes there. They didn't pass the plates. They had boxes. That before they would put their money in the box, and by the way, the offerings at the temple and the offerings here go not just to pay the expenses of the church, but part of what we do is to meet people's needs. Sometimes we help a person with a utility bill. Sometimes we buy groceries. Sometimes we buy a tank of gas so that they can get from home to where their job is. We help people. Jesus said, don't trumpet it out that you're going to give money because these people used to. They would send somebody ahead to say, here comes, here comes Shlomo. He's giving 10,000 drachmas for the care of the poor. Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. In other words, give without stopping to think about what it's costing you. He says, when you give, not if, when. 
If you're growing as a Christian, you give and you do it because you have a generous heart and you don't want people to know that you're giving. What you want is to give to God because you love Him and you love the people the way God does. Why aren't your disciples fasting like the Pharisees do, like John's disciples do? Well, because the bridegroom's with them. You've got to understand the way that weddings worked in those days. The wedding took place when the bridegroom came to the bride's father's house and took her out of it. The wedding wasn't held someplace else. The wedding was him taking his bride out of the house. When the bridegroom gets there, you don't fast. The time for fasting is over. The time for the party to begin is now. Jesus did not come so that people would fast. What Jesus wanted was for people to experience the joy of having their sins forgiven and having a new life. Romans chapter 6 says that when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, we die with Him, we are buried with Him, and we are raised with Him to live a new life. That's when the new birth begins. Not a moment before, not a moment after. When a person is baptized, the new life begins. You are in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the churches in Colossae and Ephesians, and he says that when you are baptized, you enter into Christ. You don't do it just when you believe. You don't do it just when you know who He is. You do it when you are born again through the waters of baptism. Period. And when you are in Christ, it brings you such joy. You can't keep quiet. These followers of Jesus were ecstatic that Jesus wanted to spend time with them. If you are a Christian, Jesus came not to make your life a drudgery. The praying is not supposed to be a drudgery. The fasting is not supposed to be a drudgery. And the giving is not supposed to be a drudgery. They are indications that your life has been filled with joy. And listen to me, if your life is not filled with joy, you aren't very close to Jesus. Did you hear me? If your life is not characterized by joy, you can't be very close to Jesus. It's not possible that you're close to Jesus. I'm not saying that you don't have any troubles in your life, but your anxieties are gone because you know He's going to take care of you. That does not mean that all of the problems are just going to magically disappear and go away. What it means is that you know that in the midst of your troubles, He is there with you. You are not alone. You know that your life does not consist in what money you have, or whether or not you are healthy, or whether or not people just flock around you. Your life is consisting of joy because you are close to Jesus. And if you don't have joy in your life, you are not close to Jesus. These people wanted to be around Jesus and they did not fast because the bridegroom was here and they had joy. Boy, I hope you do too. Last thing. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus did not create people for the purpose of benefiting a set of rules. He made rules in order to benefit the people. There's a vast difference. The purpose of the Sabbath 
as commanded by God to Adam and Eve first, before they ever sinned. Six days you'll labor, and on the seventh day, you're going to rest. The purpose of the Sabbath was to rest, to get reconnected to God. Think about your life. Do you just feel weary? Do, do you feel as though, man, I just never catch a break. I'm not talking about the difference between good luck and bad luck. I'm talking about, do, do you ever feel like you just don't have the energy to go on? Probably, you're not resting. And I'm not just talking about whether or not you rest when you sleep at night. I'm talking about taking a day off. In ancient days, they were concerned that if they did not continue to work on the Sabbath, that somehow they were going to collapse economically. Well, it's time to plant. And if I'm not out there planting, and, and this may be the only day that the weather is right for me to plant or when it's time to harvest if I don't harvest now the rains may come and the grain may be ruined look it doesn't matter what your economic enterprise was there's always a temptation to keep working there's always something more to do have you noticed that no matter how much you work how many days in a row you work, how many hours you put in in a day, there's always something to do. We're now talking about what to do if a person answers email after they go home at night. Because there's an overflow between our work email and our pleasure email. And somehow, if we look at our pleasure email, we think we have to look at our work email. And so, do we compensate a person for answering email at home? Or do we forbid them to, to look at email when they get home? In our society, especially, we are so concerned with the acquisition of things that we think that if we stop working for a moment, everything's just going to tumble downhill. You think it's just us? No matter what age it is in which people have lived, there's always been a temptation to work seven days a week. Always. But God, who made us, knows what we need. Do you rest? In the Old Testament law, there were more than 30 things that were specifically prohibited from being done on the Sabbath. One of them was harvesting. As Jesus and his followers made their way through a field of grain on the Sabbath, they were hungry. So as they went by, they just grabbed a few heads of grain. Matthew and Luke tell us they rubbed them between their hands, which was equated to cooking. And so now they violated two of those more than 30 things that the scriptures prohibited from being done on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees condemned. The law did not prohibit eating. Jesus asked a question. Haven't you read the scriptures? Don't you remember that episode of David and his men being hungry and coming in to the sanctuary of God and taking the bread of the presence, which was on a table in front of the most holy place, and that bread was put out every Sabbath, and it was there as an indication to God of a person's faith and their rejoicing and and when that week was done, that bread would then be given to the priests. And only the priests were lawfully permitted to eat that bread. Lawfully by God's law. 
But David and his men ate that bread. Jesus said, man wasn't made for the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man's benefit. There are a lot of times we think that God's rules are there just to take away our joy, to steal our pleasure. Listen to me. God did not create you for the purpose of following a set of rules. What rules he did make, he made for your benefit. But it's really important not to confuse the two. Sometimes we get real cranky about not just what we do or what we don't, but the way we do it. When we do it. You know something? I don't want you to go out and start breaking rules. But I do want you to understand that God made the rules not just to steal your joy, but because you're going to benefit from them. The important thing is not the keeping of rules. The important thing to remember is this. God made them precisely because he wants you to have joy. Why? Because he loves you. One of the words that is used in the Old Testament that sometimes gets translated sin, and that's in Hebrew, and in the New Testament, in the Greek language, one of the words also translated sometimes sin or trespass means a violation of the rules. Paul would later write to Timothy, law wasn't made for good people. Law was made for lawbreakers in order to show that we're not living in keeping with the will of God. God didn't make rules because good people needed them. He made rules because most people aren't good. And one of the ways that we learn that we're not good is when we finally wake up and see that certain things aren't good for us. God made the rules to benefit you, not the other way around. So, that's what Jesus didn't do. Did you learn anything about Jesus today? Did you learn anything that might lead you to believe that if you follow Jesus, one of the results is going to be forgiveness of your sins? And if you knew that following Jesus would result in the forgiveness of your sins, would it bring you joy? And when you finally have your sins forgiven, as Peter says on the day of Pentecost, takes place at the time of your baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the Spirit as a gift. If you did that, you think you would have joy? Well, you know what? If you don't have joy, you don't know Jesus. And if you don't know him, but would like to, well, I'd like to talk with you. Because I want to tell you about the joy that he gave me. December 25th, 1966. And has been there ever since. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm grateful to you not just for the things that Jesus did, but for why he did them, and even for the things that he didn't do. 
You've been so kind to us. You and your son have been so loving toward us. And you give us your spirit so that we might have an inexpressible joy that fills us each moment, whether the circumstances are good or bad. Father, please, help us get to know Jesus. We look forward to joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.